Hi, welcome to More Life, the Reentry Podcast, a podcast about offender reentry, reform, and advocacy. I'm your host, Vankivia Gardner. Thank you for joining me today. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the challenges of a sexual offense. Um, this is a particular subset group of individuals that are justice involved, populate that are involved in the justice system, and we're going to be talking about their experiences and the challenges that they have regarding to being convicted of a sexual offense. And so today with me, I have Dr. Cross, Dr. Kimberly Cross. She is an associate professor in the School of Public Affairs at San Diego State University. And here she teaches criminal justice and public administration. She teaches in the criminal justice and public administration programs. Um, She's earned her PhD in criminology and criminal justice from the University of Missouri, St. Louis, um, following a career with the Missouri Division of Probation and Parole. And she has her master's in criminal justice and criminology, as well as a bachelor's in psychology from the University of Missouri at Kansas City. So a lot of the research that she has done examines these lived experiences of people experiencing reentry from prison and their process towards assistance. She specifically has looked at the role of housing. She's looked at social support. She's looked at fines and fees. Um, and more recently, she's kind of looking at employment and how that is uh, impacting legally involved individuals. So without further ado, I will allow her to take the floor and say anything that she would like to add. Thanks so much, Vankivia, for having me on. I am really excited to talk with you about this particular topic, which has been the bulk of my research, and and share some of the new things that I'm working on related to this population. Yes. Thank you. Um, and I, like I said, I appreciate you coming on here and just, you know, being able to share your expertise. Um, one thing I do want to start off with first is I know that this can be a very uh, stigmatizing group um, because of the nature of their crime. And I guess for our listeners, our, before we get deep into the conversation of, is there anything that we need to be mindful of or to just keep in mind as we are discussing uh, this population? Yeah, I think that's a great point, Vankivia. The This is a really stigmatized and stigmatizing issue. And it also comes with it, people who've been victimized by the sexual offenses themselves. The conversation I hope to have today is about the people who've committed the harm. And so with that, I really ask listeners to approach this with, with an open mind and an open heart to consider how doing so will help us actually engage in reform and rehabilitation. That thank you, because that's that's exactly where I was going with that of just being open minded about the topic that we um we we will be discussing today, and you know we know that there are people who have actually been harmed, victimized, um, but we're also looking to move towards reform as well. So I do appreciate uh that that heads up and that tip. So, but yeah, just to get right into our conversation of just talking about sexual offenses, um, I guess it's important to talk about what these are and how we define these. Yeah, I think that I would approach this in two ways. So one would be the legal ways that we talk about what is a sexual offense and then also about sexual harm. And so the sometimes the legal definition can't capture all of that. And so when we look at the legal definitions, I mean, 
they run the gamut because we've got 50 states with 50 systems plus our territories in DC. And so there's a lot of variation that occurs, but generally offenses um, will be considered either contact or no contact, whether there is a victim that um, is in person or perhaps it's something like an online offense. Or we might consider it by the type of victim. Is the victim a child under the certain a certain age? Or uh, is the victim um, a male or a female? We still consider, consider it generally in a binary category. Um, and then there's the uh, degrees of sexual offense, you know, what did, how much harm has occurred or how many times did the offense take place? And that's going to be determined by typically a prosecutor in that particular jurisdiction. Um, and this is where that variation really creates some confusion and some concern among citizens, because when we ask people, what do you think of as a sexual offense? Most people will think of the very worst possible thing that could occur. And those things absolutely do. Um, but there's also a wide array of other types of behaviors that are captured under these legal definitions. But the other thing I think is equally important, and this is important for the conversation about reform, is about the harm caused and, and understanding and examining the, um, the ways in which somebody has engaged in sexual deviance or sexual harm against somebody um, or against the community and how, how that maps onto our legal definitions so that we can come up with those interventions. Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so you have, we have a legal definition, which is kind of what you talked about first, and then we have harm. Mm -hmm. And that's really what you're saying is like, um, so what you're saying there is like, that's kind of the impactful thing of this. I guess like, um, what am I trying to say here? Um, that's what's impactful of the harm that is being pushed, put on somebody, right? Yeah, and I think the reason I, I share those distinctions is because a lot of times when we're studying it, um, myself included, we have to come up with categories and we have to come up with definitions. And a lot of times we rely on the legal ones and as the research that I do, and I know the research my colleagues do, um, reveals that the legal definitions are very incomplete. Um, and so we can't make a quick ass assessment just based on the charge that someone faced alone because it doesn't encapsulate all of the potential harm that occurred. Um, and likewise, it doesn't also kind of encapsulate maybe the person's history of behavior or the other things that we might wanna consider about why somebody has engaged in this crime. And I would offer that this kind of brand or category of offenses is one of the only ones that we really dive deep into what is the root cause of the crime, what's going on there, how does that intervention then take place? I mean, we don't have subcategories for burglary, right? We just got, you know, burglary first, second, and third, and we don't we don't really distinguish between what is going on there. And maybe rightfully so, because the the nature of harm for that crime versus a sexual offense is really different. Um, but it also means that we're stuck with these legal categories that don't necessarily express the nature of what has occurred. And so the reason I point that out is just so that we've got to kind of rely on both in order to look at this particular issue, but we have to go in it with eyes open knowing that, uh, you know, one isn't going to be an end end all um, for helping us understand how to move move toward rehabilitation, move toward reform, move toward restoration. Right. Yeah. That make that makes a lot of sense to me. So I'm thinking, like, you know, with that definition and um, kind of how you've talked about, like, just sexual offenses in general. Um, I'm wondering if you could just 
talk to us a little about a little bit about because reentry and in the context of reentry and the individuals who are leaving, you know, incarceration with these offenses and kind of what you, I don't know, maybe even in your personal experience as a, you know, at the probation and parole division you were in, uh, what their lived experiences are like uh, and kind of some of the challenges that they encounter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that this is just such a central part of, of the work that I'm most interested in doing. And it's definitely been informed by my time working as a probation and parole officer um, where I saw people coming out from prison and, you know, this is really, I think, probably a central theme for me across all the work I do was viewing people as humans first and then starting to understand what are the things that happened, what are the things that um, people have engaged in that have got them here to this point. Um, And I think that that orientation really served me to not be jaded and not be, um, you know, really judgmental or extra stigmatizing of the population that I would be working with. But um, it was actually the bureaucracy that jaded me, not the uh, not the population I worked with, um, but really inspired me then to say, okay, what can we do to view people who've engaged in what we would consider the worst of the worst crimes? What can we do to help support people to move away from that? Um, and that's where I've uh, had such, you know, the great benefit of my doctoral work and the research that I've continued to do to help learn and understand the re- the nature of the reentry experience. So for people coming out of prison, I mean, there's a lot of shared concerns, right? Finding housing, finding employment, restoring relationships with families, the financial concerns, all of those exist for this population times infinity. Um, And that's because of the way that we've built our our legal and management responses to introduce a lot of surveillance and a lot of restrictions, you know, under the premise of, well, if we provide, if we create these restrictions, then we'll reduce harm. We will make sure that people um, don't harm again. And you know, I think what we've learned over many decades of research thus far is that more restrictions don't restore that person back to a their human capacity or their human potential. All they do is restrict. Um, and even so, there's a, quite a body of research that suggests that those restrictions have no effect at all. Um, and so when we think about, well, what are those for? What does that mean for the person reentering? So if I'm a person with a sex offense conviction, when I return from prison, I have a typically a residency restriction. I'm not allowed to live within on average a thousand foot feet of a school park or daycare with the premise being that that will prevent me from being around young children. Um, again, it, it assumes that the harm is only two children and that adults or that people at any age range could be you know, considered in potential harm. And it also assumes that that restriction does what it says it will do. Some research that I did um, back in my doctoral work revealed that they had no effect. They didn't change anything, but the qualitative data that came from that larger study revealed the increasing hardships for people to actually re-enter the community in a meaningful way. Um, so we have housing restrictions and then there's um, our residency restrictions rather, but also the other nature of people generally just don't want to rent to individuals with criminal convictions, as well as uh, even more so with a sexual offense conviction. And this is where it ties more closely with the registry. So every state um, and the federal government houses a sex offense registry where people who are convicted of most of the sex crimes in that locale have to register uh, for some duration of time. Some states, it's forever. Um, A lot of states are moving away from that 
as of now and creating a more a tiered system so that people can get off the registry after a certain period of time. But what that means is if I'm a landlord, I don't want to rent to somebody who's going to be on the registry because now that address that I own that I'm renting to somebody is going to be on the registry. And so there's a real um, uh, challenge that occurs because that doesn't happen for people without sex offense convictions because even more so people don't want to rent to individuals with that because of the more public facing nature of what that's going to mean. Um, you know, uh, uh, many times people can pull up that registry system and draw a map around where they live to identify who is registered in my area. And it creates this sense of fear, uh, though the intention of the registry you know, from many standpoints was to create a sense of, um, you know, ability to keep yourself safe. If you know who your neighbors are, then you're going to be able to protect your children. But what it also has shown to do is create a lot of fear around people who live um, nearby, individuals who are registered. And so those are just some of the examples that people are facing when they are reentering. And that, that sex offense conviction status kind of amps up all of the reentry concerns we already know about for people returning from prison. Yes, and I and you, I know, I noticed that like you focus uh, a little bit on, like you say, residency, residency and housing there. And I'm wondering if you could just give us a, maybe another example of another area where this particular group may be more impacted compared to others who are convicted of non-sexual uh, crimes. Yeah, so two things I'd add to that. So around the um, areas of housing and um, kind of that return and that registration period is the uh, concept of stigma. Um, and so we understand stigma generally, we understand it more specifically for people with criminal convictions and the way that that looks. But again, it's amped up for people who have a sexual offense conviction because most people believe that if I hear the word sex offender, then it is the worst. That person's done the worst of the worst without actually examining what, what went on here, what goes on here, um, and what does that mean? Um, and so that also drives what our responses look like. So that area of stigma um, has also been a part, a focus of my work related to these reentry barriers because the stigma is probably going to be the hardest thing for us to alleviate. Um, but you asked for another example and some recent work that I've done um, with uh, Dr. Beth Hubner and Dr. Beth, uh, Dr. Brian Plegenkuhl and Andrea Giffray. Um, it has been around legal financial obligations. And so money, what are the monies that people have to pay? And I think it's actually quite a timely issue for right now when inflation is crazy and money feels really short in supply for many people. So most um, individuals coming out of prison uh, will face a variety of fines and fees that they have to pay to the state. So it could be related to the victim's compensation fund, restitution, if there is a victim involved, it might involve prior court costs or other fees related to court processing, and then also a probation and parole fee. And almost every state in the United States has a fee that they charge people on probation and parole every month. Um, in uh, cases, it, it runs a wide range, but a typical amount is between $30 and $60 per month, which is sounds on the face of it, maybe not that much money, but it actually is a lot of money um, for people to figure out how to drum up, especially if they're returning from prison, they're unemployed, they have all these other costs, but they also need to just live day to day. And I mean, I know rents everywhere are out of control, but given the limitations I just described on finding a place to live, they're likely paying more in rent um, 
and we have some studies that suggest that that's the case because they have this added um, stigma on their record. So they got to pay more to get over that. But also as part of it, people with sex offense convictions are paying for a bunch of other stuff that they're required to do. So individuals typically have to pay out of pocket to complete polygraph testing um, once or multiple times per year. Um, in one of the recent studies we conducted, that was $250 each time, and they had to do it twice per year. Um, the other cost that comes with that is paying for treatment. So this is one of the conundrums I think that uh, faces a lot of us who are doing this work is individuals who are convicted of sexual crimes or who, who commit sexual harm, there's a, a strong belief that people need treatment. And the research is pretty, pretty convincing that treatment does support uh, reduced recidivism. It supports changes in the ways that people think uh, healthy ways of coping. Um, and sex offense treatment typically deals not just with the sexual offense, but all of the things that are surrounding it. So it can it can really be seen as this much this very holistic approach to providing some kind of uh, rehabilitation and restoration. But what that typically means in most places is that people have to pay for it and pay for it out of pocket. Most insurance won't cover it. Um, and unlike substance abuse treatment or other forms of mental health treatment in most communities, sex offense treatment isn't covered. So in one of the studies that we worked on, people had to pay $35 a week to participate in that treatment program. And so you add that up each week, every month, uh, 12 months a year, people are paying out of pocket several thousands of dollars. And that comes with real consequences. If someone can't pay, it means they're being non-compliant with treatment, which means that they are in violation of their probation and parole. So we have a real slippery slope with this added uh, constraint related to reentry that other people may not be facing. Um, and that's become a real, um, a real concern and a real issue, especially as times continue to get tough uh, regarding money, but they've always been tough for people with criminal convictions. Um, and so here's where that sexual offense conviction, again, amps up the reentry concerns that people are facing. Yeah. And I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because um, like, I have never, I don't think I've ever read anything about that or known that at all. Like of just like, the financial obligations and the uh, hardships that they have. Like, granted, I know just from like my research and the experience that I have had that people have financial hardships when they are coming out of incarceration, but I didn't think of it in the magnitude of what you're talking about. Um, and it's very much sounds like having this particular offense, like you said, it's very, all the challenges that you're going to have is times five. It's going to be five times harder than an individual who just has maybe a drug crime or a nonviolent crime or, like you said, a burglary charge. And I'm and I think that's one of the things I love about, like, just having this podcast is like learning new information. Like, that's something that I have never known. And I've never even thought about, like, looking into of like how these collateral consequences are different across um different subsets and different groups um so yeah I that that was great and I, I thank you for sharing that sorry I just really enjoyed you talking about that um and so now you know you've kind of talked about these like lived experiences and a little bit of these collateral consequences and kind of the challenges of having a sexual offense and I'm wondering you know as these individuals are 
coming out and they're trying to reenter, they're trying to, you know, turn their life around and move towards assistance. Um, how are they doing that? What is like motivating them to towards that assistance? I think that's a really good question. Um, and I also think that we we don't know yet because uh, a lot of the research we have around this, my, my own included, feels really sad. It feels really sad to, to see individuals' lives um, that are really messy and that they return to communities that are very unwilling to accept them. Um, in any way. And this is true for many people reentering, but we, as we just kind of established, it's especially true for people with a sex offense conviction. And so when I started in this work, I was really interested in kind of the individual change. Okay. How does an individual move away from their kind of sexual deviance? How do they cope with maybe unsexual, unhealthy sexual behavior? Um, how do they how do they manage that? I was really focused on the psychology of it. I wanted to know how does somebody move away from that so that they don't um, engage in that offense again. And very quickly, I learned that that was just such a small piece of it because no matter how much treatment someone has been through, and I'll talk about that in a second, when they are released from prison, it is it is returning to a fire pit. It is returning to a place that is unwelcoming, that doesn't doesn't want people to succeed. It's it's almost in such contrast to what we train and um, help people cope with through therapy and treatment that it's it's astounding that we would just almost completely contradict or counteract the progress that people make. So most places in the United States require an individual who's been convicted of a sexual crime to engage in sexual offense specific treatment. So in most prison settings, there'll be a special housing unit where the treatment program um, exists and people will go to that treatment program uh, some period of time before they're released. So sometime within the year or two years before they're released. Um, so imagine if I'm somebody who has been convicted of a crime, I'm sentenced to 10 years in prison, I'm going to sit in prison for eight years before I actually get any treatment. Um, and thinking about all of the, the potential for harm and challenges that we know about prison, you know, experiencing that. But then I'm going to go through an incredibly intensive treatment program. And I can't complete that program until the clinicians who are involved establish that I have made sufficient progress and I can be, um, I would not be considered dangerous to the community. And I've been considered sufficiently treated such that I can move to a community-based program because that's one of the I would offer maybe positives about our approach to treatment with sex offense um, crimes is that we have in-prison treatment and then most cases we'll do aftercare for some extended period of time. So people are getting a lot of therapy. And as I described, you know, people, we all have really messy lives. We would all benefit from therapy, but here's a group that we're providing it. We're giving that, giving people the treatment that they need, but treatment doesn't, doesn't and can't work in that vacuum. So once someone is return to their community, what things are we providing to help bolster the skills and the, the, the progress that they've made in that treatment program? What things are we doing to help that person move forward? And this is where the research that I've done and other research that's, that comes out of Australia and the UK and Canada um, is showing that these barriers really impede that progress. Now that's not to say that people walk back on their treatment program, but instead, People are persevering in the face of these barriers. Um, the research that I've conducted has shown that um, 
the men specifically had experienced a lot of change, a lot of growth in their own personal worlds um, and entered communities that didn't want them there. And they were able to still maintain that treatment progress, you know, in spite of everyone not welcoming them back, in spite of having a community that wasn't going to meet them where they were at. Um, and so that is part of that pathway to desistance. But it doesn't mean that it's foolproof or it's picture perfect, because what that means is the specific pathway to desistance um, is really just about not reoffending, but it's not about restoring and giving somebody back a whole life. Um, they, people are, you know, restricted from working, restricted from living with family, doing these kinds of um, things that we would consider normal. And we don't create a space for that normalcy to come back, which is where I come to, you know, at present with a lot of my own current advocacy work, um, which has been situated in restorative justice, is really this idea of we don't want people, if the goal is to not have people harm again, um, we have to acknowledge that people are whole people. And we have to acknowledge that repairing the harm is what's central, not continuing to punish or restrict people. Um, and that's where there's a real disconnect in our current policies and programs and the ways in which we could act actually achieve what people call um, you know, tertiary desistance or that kind of like ongoing community level change where someone's not going to reoffend or not commit harm. But it also takes the focus not just on the person who's committed the harm, but it also pulls it back and it focuses on the person who's been harmed so that they're receiving the care they need. I mean, we know quite well that people who are victims of crimes aren't always receiving um, uh, restoration. They're not receiving repair. Uh, and certainly in a lot of cases, justice, whatever that kind of looks like, but also the community. The community is also harmed by these offenses, um, but the community is taking a back seat in what do I need to do to help people be accountable? We tend to think of it as holding people accountable, which is important, but we also have to help people be accountable too. And that's where the community is central to making this happen. And so if we want to, in my view, based on this these projects and the men that I've talked to um, over the last decade is that we have we have to we have to meet people where they are when they come to us from prison, um, and many of them have have been through significant forms of treatment that we should meet them there instead of where they were when they came to prison. Yes, and so if I could just like recap um, yeah. uh, just a little bit of what you said. So at the very beginning, you were kind of um, you were talking about these individuals and, you know, the offenses that they have, and, you know, they're going through this intense treatment and even with the treatment that they're getting um, when they're coming out into the, their communities and society, the support is not there for them. Um, and so they're kind of falling back into maybe this cycle of not, not necessarily reoffending um, and like not necessarily reoffending, but, it's not restoring their life. Um, and for us, like as a community and as people that are out here, the thing that we kind of need to do is to look at these people holistically and understand like, okay, they made a mistake. Um, but in order for us to advance, uh, we have to provide some level of support for them. And 
And that doesn't take away, granted, that doesn't take away the pain that, or the harm that they have may have caused to their victims. But if we ever want to move forward in life and kind of create a place where they can restore themselves and possibly reduce that harm and focus on public safety, we have to restore them as an individual first. Yeah, that's perfect. And I would add to that, that the restoring somebody is actually part of serving justice. Uh, it's part of restoring the victim. It's for part of restoring the community. Um, you can't do any of those things without doing all of them. Uh, and, you know, the justice system isn't quite, quite so good at that uh, just yet, but I think that's really important. And one thing that I I think this is kind of a natural place to introduce this is there might be listeners who are saying, well, so what? These people deserve it. They're the ones that did these things. They deserve to um, go through this, these hardships. They deserve to pay more money. They deserve to have these restrictions. And I would, I would counter back the, the way I began our conversation about having an open heart and open mind and wonder, is that serving everyone? If we're just focused on this punishment for somebody who's done something that's very egregious, that we would all agree is very harmful and creates um, ha harm to victims and to communities, that if if that's if that's the approach that we have, then we'll never pull ourselves out of this this kind of cycle that we've that we've created. Um, it also does nothing to acknowledge the harm that was created to begin with, and this is where I would return to those those definitions of sexual offending. If we focus so much on the legal definition and the legal interventions, then we're missing our opportunities to support restoring people back to where they were. And one thing you said, I think is key. This is also some people are really critical about is that uh, treatment focuses on the harm and it being something that you've done that's incredibly harmful, but it's not who you are. So this is where that the conversations around identity matter a whole lot. Um, and currently our system stigmatizes folks in a way that it centers their identity around their conviction. This is true for people with other form, other convictions as well. We center identity around the worst thing that you ever did. Um, and we make that who you are. And that really, um, a, one that really contradicts what people are doing in therapy and in treatment, but it also uh, creates an environment where you can never redeem yourself. You could never come back from it. Um, and this is where the, the current understandings of desistance have been limited because they, they don't necessarily take into account all of the structural ways that our systems and our communities are kind of setting people, people back. Um, and so I would implore people to think about Think about that and think about how the worst thing that you ever have done in your life is not who you are as a person. It certainly doesn't have to be who you are as a person. Um, and that's really one of the, the kind of framing principles, I think, that will drive us toward, toward reform and toward restoration. I'm really glad you brought that up because identity is such a critical piece whenever you are working with anybody that is involved in the justice system. Like you said, like they put this label on you of convicted felon or, you know, sex offender. And then this is kind of what you live by. And this is kind of what people view you as and what the world perceives you as. And it's hard to get away from that. And I, I imagine that for these individuals, it's even harder to move away from a label like that uh, when society has defined you this way. And, and I, I really like what you said for our listeners to, in, you know, really reflect on 
the worst thing that you've ever done. And it's like, do you define yourself by that? And do others define you by that? And that's why I, re- I just really like the idea of like second chances, um, regardless of, um, you know, who you are or what you've done. And I, I like the point that you also brought up about just like um, another thing. I, and I've talked about this in another episode of, you know, just identity and like the things that we, the words that we use, um, you know, calling someone a sex offender um, is probably not the most empowering thing for them to hear. So like just even the words that we use, uh, the the metaphors that we use or the references that we make, like they have an impact um, and they are they are stigmatizing. So even just audience, I just encourage you to kind of reflect on those things and like think about that and like how are you approaching these individuals how are you interacting with them and um is it moving you in a way to is it moving you towards what you would like for them to be at or like what you would like the world to be at when it comes to like this particular group of individuals um but yeah so I know I just went on like a rant there and I'm so sorry about that but um (laughs) just going back to our conversation because we're we're talking about these and um I know one of the things that we talk about is like stigmatization and that's a that's a really big thing for this group and I'm wondering what are ways in which we can kind of reduce that stigmatization besides like language like I know I just mentioned that are there other things that we could do as a society or as a community because I know you mentioned earlier community has kind of taken a step back what can they do to kind of help um, in this area yeah I have I have two big thoughts on that one of um one of which is more like legal and one of which is more community-based thinking. So the first one is, you know, I am a firm believer that uh, the registry is highly misused. Um, I think that it came up at a time where people thought with, I I do believe good intention, um, but with really tough execution of how to make the registry be something that is supposed to be useful. And because it, it really stands on kind of, kind of flimsy premises that if people have the information on the registry, they'll be better able to protect themselves. Well, the, the real thing that we can't seem to wrap our heads around is that most of the people um, who are committing harm or are uh, engaging these offenses aren't on the registry because they've not committed the crimes yet or they've not been in the system yet. Um, it also obscures the fact that so many of these types of offenses are occurring within family structures. They're occurring within local structures that uh, we tend to just still fixate on this very outdated view of the boogeyman or stranger danger. Um, and that's really that's really created some bad policy. And so I would I would um, really move people to listen to the stories told by uh, Patty Wetterling, who is the mother of Jacob Wetterling, which is the one of the first memorial acts we had around sex offense um, behaviors and also the legislation that really moved us towards having a registry. And she has been very clear. This is a woman whose, hu- whose child was abducted, it was, who was a victim of a very stranger danger type offense. And she has advocated for removing the registry from being a public facing type of tool and keep it solely based for law enforcement. That was its origin, was if we had a had a registry of individuals with these types of crimes that was only available to law enforcement, then we would be able to 
do better investigations. We would be able to find children who were abducted faster if we thought that was going on. We would be able to use that as a tool. But what it would do is it would take it out of the public sphere. It would stop putting people's private information online. Um, it would stop framing individuals, again, by the worst thing that they've ever done. Um, and, and in my view, it would stop creating kind of the fear mongering that the registry has taken shape. So that would be one thing I would absolutely advocate for. But the other thing that I think is maybe even the more important, and this is the work, this is around the current work that I'm doing, um, is around um, a, a program called uh, Circles of Support and Accountability, or COSA. Uh, and COSAs are derived out of Canada. Um, they're situated in spiritual traditions, but come from um, indigenous um, traditions. And it's really focused on the idea of having a circle of people who support you and through that support can also help you be accountable. Um, and so I have found personally a lot of uh, reward and privilege to be part of those circles, but it's also made me think more deeply about how can you create more circles around people coming from prison. So not just for this population, but for anyone coming from prison. Um, how can you create a group of individuals who are going to meet that person where they're at and who are whose sole purpose is to su provide support in a way that helps that person remain accountable and remain crime-free, remain sober, remain um, working toward their goals in life. And so in practice, just as an example, myself and um, now four of my dearest friends um, here in the local area in San Diego, we've been part of the inaugural COSA San Diego project that was actually spearheaded by the public defender's office. So uh, the public defender has a unit of individuals who are coming out of prison that are still under their purview and they provide legal representation for that they knew needed support. And so uh, I got to be part of this great group. I still am part of this great group uh, for somebody coming out he had he'd been in prison for over a decade. Um, he'd committed some pretty serious crimes. Uh, but our purpose as a circle was to invite him and welcome him home um, and understand the things that he needed to also help him understand what do I need when I come out from, from this experience of incarceration to not only support um, what he had been learning in treatment and the ways that he wanted to live his life, but also how does how do you engage with normal interactions with people? How do you how do you have friendships? What does it look like to have somebody who calls you every week to find out how you're doing or just learn about what you did during your day? And we we probably don't think enough about those small acts of kindness and love and support and caring that are not at all centered around the crime that the person committed. They're just centered around this person as a human. And this is where I feel like the community's responsibility to to welcome people home and surround them with this type of support is is the thing that's missing. Um, and and how do you scale that up? This is the this is the question that I'm asking right now in my research. How do you create systems that will help um, support this? How do you change the hearts and minds of communities that don't want people back um, living living near them? And um, so that's what I'm working on right now. So I don't have the full answer for you, but I've been so inspired by my own personal experience, uh, as well as seeing the transformation that's occurred for this individual that to, to see his identity go from being a, an incarcerated person, a person who's labeled um, as a sexual offender or a sexual predator to just somebody 
somebody who's going to school, somebody who got his first car after a decade and a half, somebody who's trying to find a new place to live, like all of the real life things that we go through on the day to day. That's the stuff that we support this person through. And all of that type of support accumulates and it, it helps that person be able to support the things they've learned in treatment so that they don't harm again. Yes. And I love that. And like, I, I wish I'm in like a more rural area. So I wish they had like programs like that where we can be more involved and um, be more supportive. And I'm hoping like that, that is great. And like, I wish uh, whoever that individual is like the best of luck um, on their journey. And I hope like that story and you sharing that will inspire our audience to like, you know, kind of go out and do the same thing and not even necessarily do the same thing, but just think the same way or reframe their perspective of these individuals. Um, and I don't know, cause it truly was inspiring to me. So I'm hopefully, I'm hoping that, you know, it can be inspiring to other people out there. And, you know, I really just want to like, thank you for coming on and like talking to us about, you know, this particular topic. I know this can be challenging and I know that it can be a topic that not everybody agrees with and not everybody is going to want to hear. Um, and some people are, you know, some people are just not at the point where they are, you know, can accept that. And that's okay. Um, but I do really appreciate you coming on here and giving us this topic in a more positive light, helping us helping us come up with a different perspective of how to view these individuals, how our communities can support them and and what we can do on a much larger level to support them as well. Yeah, thank you so much, Vankivia. Yes, um, anytime. Like I, I, like I said, I truly enjoy doing this and I truly enjoy these conversations. Um, and before we end off, I want to give you a shout out and just say, if you guys are interested in learning more about Dr. Cross um, and the research that she does, or just learning more about her in general, you can follow her on Twitter. Her Twitter account will be located in the bottom of the description box, um, as well as our um, Instagram information will be in the bottom of the description box as well. So please be sure to follow not just her, but both of us and subscribe to the podcast on here. And as always, we thank you guys for joining us and we look forward to seeing you later. <laughs>